0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. July 9th, 2018 marks the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment to the United States, and to commemorate this momentous anniversary, as well as to anticipate the Constitution Center's upcoming exhibit on the constitutional legacy of the Civil War and Reconstruction, We the People uh, is featuring, or We the People are featuring, uh, the stories of some of the 14th Amendment's most important figures. In this episode, we delve into the life and constitutional story of the father of 14th Amendment, whom Justice Hugo Black referred to as the Madison of the 14th Amendment, Ohio Congressman John Bingham. Joining us are two of America's leading scholars on John Bingham. I'll go so far as to say, America's two leading scholars on John Bingham, the 14th Amendment uh, and constitutional law. Gerard Malioka is Samuel Rosen professor at the Indiana University, Robert McKinney School of Law. He's the author of four books, including, most importantly for today, The leading biography, one can almost say the only biography of John Bingham, and it's called American Founding Son John Bingham and the Invention of the 14th Amendment. And Kurt Lash is the E. Claiborne Robbins Distinguished Chair in Law at the University of Richmond School of Law and the founder and director of the Richmond Program on the American Constitution. He is the author, among many important articles and books of the 14th Amendment and the privileges or immunities of American citizenship. Gerard, Kurt, thank you so much for joining. Thank you,
1: Jeff. Jeff, thank you so much for having me.
0: OK, Gerard, we're going to jump right in. It is astonishing that the James Madison of the 14th Amendment has a one significant biography. But fortunately, it's yours, and it's superb. And I wonder if you could just begin by telling us who was John Bingham, and how did his early experiences uh, form his anti slavery view of the Constitution?
2: Well, John Bingham was a congressman from Ohio before, during, and after the Civil War, who played a pivotal role in shaping America's policy during Reconstruction after the Civil War ended. And his early experiences uh, came from his uh, home area in Ohio, and most notably, the fact that he went to college at an evangelical, small evangelical school, and. His closest friend was an ex-slave, Titus Basfield, and they corresponded all throughout uh, Basfield's life. And from this and other experiences, Bingham became very steeped in kind of abolitionist thinking uh, about the Constitution and about the evil of slavery. And he carried that forward into politics as best he could, like any politician trying to win votes and convince people, and that took time. But eventually, he was in a position to put his constitutional ideas into practice uh, when the Civil War ended, and Congress took up the 14th Amendment.
0: Thank you so much for that. Uh, Kurt, what can you add to uh, Bingham's constitutional vision before the 39th Congress began its debates? Uh, There was an important debate over uh, the admission of Kansas and Oregon to statehood, which helped him form the idea as president in the 14th Amendment. And in particular, he had a very unique theory of the comedy clause of Article 4 of the Constitution, which he believed contained an ellipsis. So that, that's a, this is a very wonky question, but tell us about Bingham's <laughs> ellipsis theory of the comedy clause. And if our listeners can master that, then they will have special door prizes.
1: Well, thank you, Jeff. And and again, it's such a pleasure to be here with you and Gerard talking about um, John Bingham, who's really a, a national hero, and, and as we begin, just to um, to give uh, the listeners some context, is the importance of John Bingham. Uh, Bingham not only drafted one of the most important constitutional texts in our nation's history, Section One of the Fourteenth Amendment, he also played a key role in securing the ratification of the 14th Amendment as well. And we can talk about that. Um, Bingham fought for equal rights for black Americans before the 13th Amendment and before the Civil War. And he supported black suffrage before we had a 15th Amendment. Um, So I think that Justice Black was absolutely right. John Bingham is the James Madison of the post-Civil War Constitution. And it's, it's absolutely a mystery to me uh, why his statue isn't somewhere on the mall in uh, in Washington D.C. But maybe podcasts like this can help uh, help generate some support. Now, you asked about his early ideas and how they fed into what eventually would be the debates and the drafting of of the Fourteenth Amendment. And Gerard is is absolutely right. It was the the abolitionist thinking and the abolitionist strain in the Republican Party that he'd he um, he matured in his constitutional thinking along alongside, and part of the um, the major constitutional argument of antebellum abolitionists was that whatever you thought about um, blacks being citizens of the United States and whatever your views were about Dred Scott announcing that uh, blacks could not be considered citizens of the United States, you could not deny that blacks were persons. And under the Fifth Amendment, the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment, no person could be denied life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And abolitionists began to key into the Fifth Amendment as a major constitutional argument against slavery and uh, trying to break slavery away from the original Constitution and actually make an argument that that kind of extraordinary suppression of individual freedom could not be reconciled. Uh, with the original constitution. So that abolitionist due process argument is going to play a very important role to John Bingham. It's going to be a part of all of his drafts of, um, of the 14th amendment. It's going to be in all of his arguments as he moves through, um, through reconstruction. Now just prior, and I'll, I'll sort of end my, my initial contribution here with this. You mentioned a debate that occurred just prior to the civil war And um, Bingham played a role in arguing against the admission of Oregon, which he believed had a proposed constitution. This is 1859, by the way. And uh, Oregon had a proposed constitution that contained one of the first black codes, uh, which excluded blacks from entering, um, entering the territory. And Bingham insisted that this was a fundamental denial of the rights of American citizenship and the rights of all persons to be free. And I want to just briefly quote John Bingham, as we kind of enter into the Civil War period and into um, Reconstruction. Here's here's, uh, uh, Representative Bingham. The equality of all, to the right to live, to the right to know, to argue and to utter according to conscience, to work and enjoy the product of their toll, is the rock on which that constitution rests, its sure foundation and defense. Take this away, and that beautiful and wise and just structure so full of the goodness and truth of our fathers falls. The charm of that constitution lies in the great democratic idea which it embodies that all men before the law are equal, equal in respect to those rights of person which God gives and no man or state may rightfully take away except as a forfeiture for crime. That's abolitionist Republicanism talking. And those are the ideas that matured in John Bingham um, and that we're going to bring him into his involvement in his pivotal role in drafting the 14th Amendment.
0: Let me just thank Kurt so much for reading that so beautifully I could uh, feel the light coming through the wires. Now, Gerard, I want you to uh, tell us uh, more about that debate over the admission of Oregon and particular uh, about Bingham's interpretation of the privileges or Immunities Clause of uh, Article Four, the so-called Comedy Clause, uh, which says that uh, the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. And Bingham thought that, that he was there was an ellipsis in that, and it should be read as if it meant the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States in the several states. What was the significance of his interpolation of that ellipsis? And tell us more about that debate.
2: Well, Bingham and other abolitionists were trying to get across the idea that they thought there were fundamental rights guaranteed by the Constitution to everyone in the nation, and not just because you lived in a particular state. Now, what kind of fundamental rights were they talking about? Well, to some extent, they were talking about things that you could find in the common law, like the right to travel. Or the right to uh, sort of enjoy property, uh, but where Bingham's theory eventually took him, although it took a number of years, is to the idea that all of the rights in the first eight amendments of the Constitution, which we usually refer to or, and now as the Bill of Rights, applied to everyone, whether they were violated by the national government or by a state. Now. You know, We sort of take it for granted for the most part today that if a state wants to take away your freedom of speech or your freedom of religion or uh, lock you up without a jury trial, that that's something that they can't do because the Bill of Rights says that they cannot. But for most of American history, states were free within their own constitutions to do these things because the first set of amendments only applied to... Uh, the federal government. So Bingham's idea that there were these national privileges and immunities uh, that applied across the nation to everyone sort of started out as just a way of trying to understand why slavery was wrong or why uh, free African-Americans couldn't be uh, discriminated against in particular ways. But it eventually kind of evolved by the time the 14th Amendment was drafted by him, in Section 1 anyway, that uh, it guaranteed all of these fundamental rights from the founding, and that is something that has been just an incredible contribution to uh, constitutional law ever since.
0: Thank you so much, so listeners, just to stress the importance of what Gerard said, remember the original Bill of Rights applies only to Congress. It says Congress shall make no law, it doesn't say the state shall make no law. but Gerard just told us that Bingham believed that the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the original Constitution essentially guaranteed certain fundamental rights in the Bill of Rights against uh, being denied by the states as well as the federal government. But he thought that Congress had no power to enforce those rights if the states violated it. And that's why the big debate as the uh, after the Civil War was whether we should have a constitutional amendment that would give Congress and the federal courts the authority to enforce the fundamental rights that he believed the Constitution already protected. So Kurt, tell us more about those debates which began in uh, 1865 with the creation of the Joint Committee on Reconstruction and uh, culminated in the 39th Congress.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. When, when the 39th Congress met, they met under rather dramatic circumstances. Um, they were on, just on the verge of ratifying the 13th Amendment. We had a brand new president, President Andrew Johnson, who took over after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Johnson had made it his um, major concern in his early months of his presidency to secure the ratification of the 13th Amendment. Um, And he put together provisional governments in the four rebel states um, and directed those new governments to ratify the 13th Amendment and earn their place back in the empty seats of Congress. The rebel uh, states um, followed his advice. They ratified the 13th Amendment and they sent their representatives to Washington to take their seats on the opening day of the 39th Congress. Um, The Republicans in Congress, however, refused to admit them. They left them standing at the door. And the reason why was because there were enormous problems that had to be solved first. One of the major problems had to do with the black codes that were being, um, that were replacing the old slavery codes and were suppressing the right of the freedmen uh, to engage in uh, in property transactions and contracting and enforcing their new, newly acquired economic rights. But there was another, even more critical problem that the 39th Congress had to grapple with. And it was a problem caused by the 13th Amendment. Um, It had to do with the potential expansion of political power to the Democrats once they were readmitted to Congress. Under the original Constitution, slaves had only counted as three fifths of a person in terms of um, adding to the representational power of states in the House of Representatives. But once the 13th Amendment freed all the blacks in the South, they all now became persons who would count as five fifths of a person. Um, And would thus expand um, the representation of the southern states once they were readmitted and potentially thwart the Republican policy of guaranteeing freedom and security um, to both whites and blacks in the south. So they excluded the south. Um, They put together the southern representatives and they put together a joint committee to figure out what needed to be done before the southern states could be readmitted. The Joint Committee began its work by thinking through a number of propositions that would be proposed amendments to the Constitution. These were separate proposals. The first proposal they worked on under, um, even though Fessitin was the chair of the committee, it was really Thaddeus Stevens, who was the political leader of the committee. And the first amendment they worked on was an apportionment amendment that would reduce the representation of the southern states if they denied the vote to blacks. That was called the apportionment amendment. A second amendment was one that John Bingham was pursuing from the opening moments of the 39th Congress. It was an equal civil rights or an equal due process rights kind of amendment, and he went through different versions of it, but eventually he got the joint committee to adopt a draft that used the language of Article IV's Privileges and Immunities Clause, and also the language of the Fifth Amendment's Due Process Clause. And what it did is it empowered Congress to protect Article 4 privileges and immunities and empowered Congress to protect the due process rights of all persons. And this draft, this was became the first draft of Section 1. It has been the subject of scholarly debate for, you know, for over, for over a century. Because even though Bingham used the language of Article 4's privileges and immunities clause He described the clause in a very peculiar way. And there will be some readers following along on this podcast who might actually have access to a constitution um, while they're listening. And I'll give you a couple of moments here um, to grab your, uh, your portable constitutions. But if you look at Article 4, Section 2, it says the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. That is sometimes called the comedy clause, and it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court for over a century as providing visitors who travel from state to state as a degree of equal protection, equal access to a certain number of rights that states provide their own citizens. So if a state allows one person to sell shoes, if they allow their people to sell shoes, then a visitor from out of state should be allowed to sell shoes as well. But it's just an equal protection clause. John Bingham read that clause as going far beyond equal protection. He said you need need to add some words as kind of an ellipsis when you read that clause so that it turns into this. The citizens, parentheses, of the United States, close parentheses, of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. Bingham insisted that that clause was not just talking about citizens of each state but was actually talking about citizens of the United States in each state. And he insisted that citizens of the United States had fundamental rights, particularly rights that were enumerated in the constitution itself. And he dwelt a lot on the fifth amendments, uh, due process clause. Um, And so he believed that if this amendment was adopted, not only could Congress enforce article four privileges and immunities, but Congress would have power to enforce all of the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States, including those rights listed in the bill of rights. That's the, and again, to quote John Bingham, when he first introduced um, this draft, here's what he said on February 28th, 1866. And he's speaking about that first article Four language draft. Gentlemen admit the force of the provisions in the bill of rights that the citizens of the United States shall be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States in the several states. And that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty or property without due process of law. But they say we're opposed to its enforcement by act of Congress under amended constitution as proposed. That is the sum and substance of all the argument that we have heard on this subject. Why are gentlemen opposed to the enforcement of the Bill of Rights as proposed? That was his theory of that first draft. It was going to give Congress power to enforce the Bill of Rights. Unfortunately, Congress didn't agree with Bingham. And Gerard, you can take over from here if you'd like.
0: Thank you so much for that, Gerard. So much for you to say, uh, because your account of Bingham's role in the draft of Section one in your book is the definitive one. Uh, Kurt has quoted the uh, original draft of the Fourteenth Amendment, or, or has uh, paraphrased it. I'll, and I'll, ju- I'll just quote it: "The Congress shall have the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper to secure to the citizens of each state all the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states." So, please tell us what Bingham thought those privileges or immunities were and about his pamphlet, One Country, One Constitution, and One People, which you call the most important speech of his career.
2: Right. Well, he was trying to defend the idea that Congress ought to be given the power to enforce the provisions of the first eight amendments uh, or the first uh, set of amendments. And the objections that were given by some members of Congress was that, well, this would give Congress far too much power uh, at the expense of the states, you know, that states' rights was an issue and that if you really gave Congress the power to legislate about due process or equal protection or many of the rights in the Bill of Rights, that would simply wipe out states' rights. And Bingham tried to uh, assuage those concerns by saying, look, uh, everybody knows what the Bill of Rights uh, are, that is, everybody knows what's in the first eight amendments. And those are things that, first of all, do not pose any kind of risk to states' rights uh, if they're enforced by Congress. And secondly, that um, the states really ought to have been following these provisions anyway, uh on their own. But since they weren't, we needed to do something to give Congress the power to enforce them. Now ultimately the draft had to be modified because there were just too many objections uh, along these sort of states' rights lines. So the revised version that eventually emerged, and, you know, you can, there was this Joint Committee on Reconstruction, which was kind of like the Constitutional Convention of the 14th Amendment. It was a small, select group that met in secret, so we don't know a whole lot about why they chose the language that they ultimately did. Um, but what emerged was something that simply said, that no it shall uh, deny uh, due process of law, equal protection, and shall infringe privileges or immunities of citizens. Now, this was different in that it said nothing about Congress directly having the power to enforce these things, although there was an enforcement provision placed at the end of the 14th Amendment in Section 5. Rather, the idea was simply that courts we're going to enforce these rights or limit the states. And Bingham talked about that uh, to some extent, although not as much as you might expect, looking at it from our vantage point where we think of the courts as being really important in protecting civil liberties. So the compromise was to kind of be a little more uh, ambiguous about what Congress's powers would be and assert more directly the idea that an obligation was being imposed on the states and that courts would have the power to enforce these obligations. So that was kind of the, uh, well, you might say, sausage-making in the legislative process at the time, uh, which, you know, frankly, was something that primarily Bingham cared about. That is to say, if you go back and look at the debates... um, you it's surprising to see how few people talked about the parts of the 14th Amendment that we really care about, equal protection and due process of law. I mean, there were a lot of other things in the 14th Amendment that people at the time cared uh, a lot more about, which we don't really think about now. Uh, Bingham, in that sense, was ahead of his time in focusing so much on these sort of civil rights guarantees and then ultimately how they would be enforced, whether it be by Congress, which he preferred, but then enforced by the courts, which is what he had to accept.
0: Thank you so much for that. So you've told us that there was a dispute about precisely how the privileges or immunities of citizenship would be enforced, primarily by Congress or by the courts. And there was also a central dispute, which continues to this day, about what those privileges or immunities are. And Kurt, you have said in your powerful uh, paper that um, Bingham changed his mind about what was covered by the privileges or immunities clause. Although initially he had thought that it covered some of the unenumerated rights that were identified in a case called Corfield and Coriel, which I want our listeners to check out. Eventually he came to view the privileges or immunities as focusing on those already defined in the federal bill of rights. Tell us about that important t- debate.
1: Well, of course. I and my thoughts about Bingham's change of mind are a a little bit different than how you you just articulated it. He, he did change his mind about the common understanding of article four. And I think that's why he changed the language. He, the the first draft of section one used the language of article four, the second draft abandoned the language of article four and, and citizens in the several states. And instead, instead of leaving that to an unstated ellipsis, just came right out and expressly declared no state shall make or enforce any law that shall abridge what that shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States so no more unspoken ellipses now you're just going to say right out what it is that you're that you're trying to protect and so the question um, that's been debated, of course, is what count as those those privileges or immunities. Do they include unenumerated rights? If so, what kinds of unenumerated rights, economic rights, perhaps, as libertarians would argue. Um, I, I don't see a consensus in the direction of um, giving either Congress um, or the courts jurisdiction over unenumerated civil rights in the states. And the reason I say that is because of what Bingham um argued in favor of and what he opposed all the way through in, in the 39th Congress. Um, he opposed the civil rights act, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, he believed that Congress before the 14th amendment, um, he disagreed that they had power to pass that kind of equal rights legislation. He, he insisted that there first had to be a 14th amendment, but he also argued um, that local civil rights and the content of local civil rights uh, should be left um, to local political majorities subject only to the natural right guarantee that one's person life, liberty and property could never be denied without due process of law and that everyone should be equally protected in whatever laws are actually, actually passed. He was a moderate. He was a moderate Republican. Now. Radical Republicans were far more aggressive in their ideas about um, national power to oversee local civil rights. And um, individuals like Charles Sumner in the Senate um, and Thaddeus Stevens in the House and, and others would have been perfectly content to have Congress take national control over the entire subject of civil rights in the states. And in fact, they even proposed ongoing permanent federal oversight of the rebel states that included the power to kick them out of the union if they misbehaved If they misbehaved in the future. Um, and John Bingham successfully led moderates in opposing that type of federal oversight of local law. Instead, he insisted, and this is really peculiar, he insisted that his amendment was taking no right away from the states that they legitimately had. He insisted they were already duty-bound to uh, respect all the rights that were written into the American Constitution, particularly the first eight amendments to the Constitution. And so therefore, by passing this amendment and giving Congress control and power to enforce those enumerated rights, Bingham and the moderates insisted that they were not changing the original Constitution. They were perfecting it. These were rights that the people themselves had already written into the document. But they had just failed to give Congress power to enforce those particular rights, and he goes into fairly significant detail on about this particular theory in his 1871 speech, where he insists that he um, that his Section One did not embrace Corfield v. Coriel or um, or nationalized common law in the states. Instead, it protected the enumerated privileges and immunities of American citizens. And then he read clause by clause, verbatim, the first eight amendments to the constitution. So what I've argued in my articles in my book is not that there weren't very expansive ideas of unenumerated rights um, in the air at the time. And and I think you can find arguments in that direction from some radical Republicans. Uh, What I argue is that they simply were a minority and the majority and the moderate Republicans who really were controlling the legislative and drafting agenda Of the 1866-39th Congress. That moderate group simply wanted to um, restore and better secure uh, the Constitution that we had, and there was a widespread belief that those rights which were actually written into the Constitution, darn it, those at least should be enforceable against the states.
0: Great, thank you very much for that. So Gerard, what our listeners must understand, Is the debate Kurt has just laid out between the position that the new 14th Amendment only protected against state infringement those rights already enumerated in the Bill of Rights, the textually enumerated rights, or whether the clause also protected certain rights that weren't in the Bill of Rights. And those, as you both have argued, were often uh, cited uh, in a case called Corfield and Coriel written by Justice Bushrod Washington whose list was cited repeatedly in Congress, and Justice Washington included in his list uh, of those unenumerated rights protection by the government, the enjoyment of life and liberty with the right to acquire and possess property, and to pursue and obtain happiness and safety subject to such restraints as the government must justly prescribe for the general good as a whole. He also mentioned passing uh, through states for purposes of trade and agriculture, claiming the benefits of habeas corpus, holding property, and so forth. So Gerard, please tell us, because it's such a crucial uh, debate, uh, what Bingham's position was about whether the 14th Amendment only protected the textually enumerated rights or whether it also protected these unenumerated rights listed in Courtfield and Coriel, which included economic and property rights and so forth.
2: Well, first, I have to say that my next book's going to be about Bushrod Washington, so I'm glad that you're such a broad <laughs> excellent and, and, and Corfield, stop the presses. because uh, it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, very interesting stuff. But uh, to but to your question, um, I think two things. One, I, I guess I, Kurt and I think differ in, uh, on this point. Uh, my view would be that Bingham did not foreclose the possibility of there being unenumerated rights protected by. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, he simply didn't say anything about what they might be, uh, and thus provided no guidance or authority that, let's say, a court could cite that basically says, oh, yeah, uh, John Bingham said something about an unenumerated right, and that's uh, evidence or authority that such a right exists. Uh, But the way I read the 1871 speech is that he, he listed the first eight amendments, But he said that the the rights uh, protected uh, came chiefly from the list uh, that he then read, not exclusively. Uh, Now, maybe that's just, you know, uh, parsing language a little too much. But basically, my view is he didn't he didn't foreclose this possibility. Now, there is one thing, though, that comes out of the list in Corfield, which um, is, is interesting, and that's the right to vote. That is. Justice Washington's opinion mentioned the right to vote as being one of these privileges of citizenship, Um, whereas, of course, the 14th Amendment does not, on its own terms, guarantee the right to vote. It doesn't even say that the right to vote is guaranteed for uh, all uh, freed slaves. It had this sort of complicated uh, formula that it tried to use to basically secure the right to vote for male freed slaves, anyway, at the time, Bingham eventually got to a position in which he said that he thought that um, all uh, African-American men should have the right to vote. Uh, but it's interesting to think that the right to vote you know, is, of course, not an enumerated right, and there was a good deal of disagreement at the time about how the 14th Amendment really related to that, and in part because of what had come before. So my view is that he he didn't rule out the possibility of unenumerated rights, but he also didn't say anything positive about it. So it's kind of uh, a neither here nor there kind of uh, assessment.
0: Thanks for that uh, very much. So, Kurt, uh, obviously this debate is hugely important because arguably the most important constitutional debate of the 20th century was, are there unenumerated rights protected by the 14th Amendment? And if so, what are they? And that's the debate, of course, that led to uh, the whole question about whether the privacy rights of Roe v. Wade were or were not plausibly linked to the 14th Amendment and so forth. So what more can John Bingham's original understanding of the 14th Amendment tell us about, A, whether it Uh, the amendment protects unenumerated rights, and B, if there are unenumerated rights, how to identify which ones they are?
1: Of course, yes. The debate um, has been over unenumerated rights for many decades under the rubric of so-called substantive due process. And um, the idea being that um, one's life, liberty, or property cannot be deprived without due process of law, and you look at that term liberty, um, and try to determine the contents of liberty that cannot be denied without due process of law. And then ultimately the court decides, as a matter of fact, no matter what kind of process is provide, uh, provided, we think there's some liberties that um, cannot be uh, denied without some kind of compelling interest. And that leads to the jurisprudence of privacy in this in the 70s and 80s. Um, I don't think that um, uh, many, if any, constitutional scholars and constitutional historians today believe that substantive due process is um, uh, is a plausible reading of the 14th Amendment, that if there are um, unenumerated rights, they wouldn't be found somehow hiding in a, in a substance provision in the due process clause. Uh, those rights must be a part of the privileges or immunities clause. And that's why the debate uh, that Gerard has played such an important role in, and others have as well, um, the debate now is no longer about due process. The debate is about privileges or immunities and, um, and what exactly those might, um, those might protect. Now my understanding of what Bingham and the moderate Republicans were trying to do was to give Congress power to enforce certain provisions in the Constitution which uh, Republicans throughout the antebellum period had um, lamented um, were not within the power of Congress to enforce. And so there were constant um, speeches and essays written about the need to give Congress power to enforce the enumerated due process clause of the Fifth Amendment. There were constant calls uh, to give Congress power to enforce the enumerated equal rights of Article IV. Remember, Article IV and its privileges and immunities clause had been understood as giving a kind of equal protection to traveling citizens. It didn't give them any substantive right, but it meant that when they travel to another state, well, they should be given a certain degree of equal respect. Well, Southern states were not giving travelers from the north any kind of equal respect. They were tar and feathering anyone who brought down um, anti-slavery arguments, anyone who challenged in any way the slave power and the system of chattel slavery um, in the South. And so there were calls to enforce Article IV's equal visitation rights, and there were calls to give Congress power to enforce the um, equal person rights of the due process clause. So what I'm arguing, and then, of course, as you got closer and closer to the Civil War, there were increasing calls that Congress enforced First Amendment rights of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom to petition government for redress of grievances and not to be subjected to cruel and unusual punishments. You see these arguments in abolitionist literature over and over again. And they limited their arguments to enumerated provisions in the Constitution because they knew that those would be the most politically persuasive in gathering momentum to give Congress power to enforce those rights that most people in the North would say, yeah, we should be enforcing those enumerated provisions. So when I say that Bingham drafted a clause um, that protected enumerated rights. I'm not limiting enumerated rights just to the first eight amendments to the Constitution. Um, They also wanted Congress to have power to enforce the equality protections um, of Article 4. But the moderates did want to limit um, the protections to just those which were familiar and in the Constitution for many reasons, one, because they were still committed to federalism. Um, And the idea of divided power between the national government and the states. And also because they knew that uh, the more expansive the authority they gave um, uh, to the courts and also to Congress under Article 5, the more power Democrats might have. Uh, to redefine what counted as property rights or local contract rights um, or local, um, uh, 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 local civil rights of all of all kinds. So this um, the argument that I think the moderates were, um, were keyed in on was an argument tied to the text for all kinds of political reasons and also for federalism reasons as well. So where does that lead if that's correct? And I know that's a subject of a, of a lot of debate. If that's correct, where does that leave the right to privacy? Where does that uh, leave Roe v. Wade? Where does that leave Troxel and the rights of parents um, to control their education and visitation rights of children? Well, there's still a possibility. For example, I think Justice Ginsburg has talked about this that we should be understanding the woman's right to abortion as part of the equal protection clause and not so much as uh, the due process clause and due process itself is still something that needs a judicial a judicial development my argument only has to do with the privileges or immunities clause and the political context out of which it arose
0: okay this is so hugely important and i i know our listeners are following very closely uh in this learning Gerard, do you agree with Kurt that John Bingham and the moderate Republicans believe that the privileges or immunities clause only included those rights textually enumerated in the Constitution, either in the Bill of Rights or elsewhere? Or do you think that Bingham thought that privileges or immunities could be construed to include unenumerated rights? And if so, how are those unenumerated rights to be construed, according to Bingham?
2: Well, I think that the first thing to say is that we sometimes put too great an expectation on the past, in that the work of just getting the enumerated rights enforced was a huge task. Uh, And indeed, one could argue, even now, there is a lot of work to be done just to get the enumerated rights in our Constitution enforced adequately throughout the country for all people. So, in that sense, maybe it's expecting a bit much to say, well, gee, why didn't they think more about the rights that weren't enumerated uh, or aren't enumerated in the Constitution? Uh, and indeed, they might have thought also that they were actually being quite bold in trying to do what they were doing, uh, moderate, you know, sometimes makes it sound as if they weren't doing much. Uh, they, just, they were just moderate as compared to other people who, who wanted to do more at the time. But uh, having said that, I, I think that, look, there was a school of thought among some people. Bingham would not really be one of, one of these. That natural law provided a kind of way of thinking about what rights you might have that aren't listed in any legal text. And certainly there was a good deal of natural law thinking at the founding. There was natural law thinking at the time of the 14th Amendment, and there is still some now. Probably it's not as prevalent now. but um, And that that is an alternative method that one could use to identify uh, unenumerated rights. And I mean, now we might just call it sort of uh, something like, I don't know, the consensus of mankind or something. Uh, but you know, Bingham never seemed to really take to that. He was more of a positive law person, even if he had to sort of interpret the positive law, like Article 4 uh, of the Constitution, creatively. So I would say that, while I wouldn't say that he foreclosed the possibility of unenumerated rights, it was certainly not what he was thinking about. And sometimes the answer on these historical points, it seems to me, is to say, well, Uh, somebody took us so far, and then it's for others coming later to kind of elaborate upon that. Now, that's more of an interpretive question, right, As to say, what is your preferred method of of interpreting the Constitution? But but I I just don't think that he gave it the kind of concentrated thought, uh, except to say that he did reject or at least not show much interest in alternative readings of fundamental rights that would have been more inclusive of a natural rights or sort of philosophy. So he certainly wasn't advocating that, but I don't know that he quite said it could not be done or should not be done.
0: Thank you so much for that. Let me just reinforce the significance of what uh, Gerard said, which is that although Bingham did believe in natural rights, and in fact, when uh, denouncing uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, he said that uh, his constitution was based on the equality of the human race. Its primal object must be to protect each human being in the free and full enjoyment of his natural rights, including the absolute equality of all. Uh, Bingham did not believe that these natural rights necessarily should be judicially enforced under the 14th Amendment. Well, listeners, you've just been privileged to hear America's leading experts discussing the original understanding of the 14th Amendment with great precision and detail, uh, and they've teed up this question of whether the 14th Amendment uh, Privileges or Immunities Clause does or does not protect unenumerated rights. I want you to learn more about this question and make up your own mind, and the way to do that is to go to the interactive Constitution, and I'm thrilled in a kind of synchronistic timing that the Privileges or Immunities Explainer of the 14th Amendment has just gone live. Akhil Amar and John Harrison turned in their homework a little late, but it's now ready in time for the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment. So go to constitutioncenter.org or to the App Store, where this will uh, soon be live if it's not already. Read Akhil and John Harrison on the Privileges or Immunities Clause, and then do further research of your own, including reading Gerard's superb book, America's Founding Son, John Bingham and the Invention of the 14th Amendment. Uh, Kurt and Gerard, it's time for closing arguments in this wonderful debate And I'm just going to ask you the uh, obvious uh, question to sum up as as concisely and intensely as you can. Uh, Why was John Bingham important and what was his original vision of the 14th Amendment? And we're going to begin with Gerard.
2: John Bingham was important because he put Jefferson's declaration or Lincoln's declaration about the fundamental equality of all people, into the constitutional text in a very clear way where it will stand forever. And in addition, he made it clear that he thought that the fundamental rights that our our Constitution lists ought to be applied to everyone against every level of government. And, you know, Bingham, in a sense, is not as well known as he should be because in his day he was ahead of his time. He was one of the few people that was really advocating for especially the extension of the Bill of Rights. But now we take for granted what he did, so we don't see the contribution he made for what it was. So I hope that something like this will help rectify that.
0: Thank you so much uh, for that and for your for your wonderful work in your and your book. And we're looking forward to the next one. Kurt, the last word is to you. Why was John Bingham important, and what was his original vision of the Fourteenth Amendment?
1: Well, and first of all, let me say what a pleasure it's been to engage in this con- conversation, and um, and a special pleasure to, to talk with Gerard, who has brought so much of our understanding of John Bingham to the attention of the public, and I thank him for that. Um, I'll I'll close with something about John Bingham that I think is critically important that I think sometimes is missed. And this comes from the ratification period. After the elections of 1866, Republicans actually increased. Um, They won um, the support of the people. Uh, to adopt uh, the Republican policy for Reconstruction, and they got additional seats in the House and the Senate. So much so that uh, radical Republicans believe that they now had the power to go forward and simply legislate um, and take control of, um, of civil rights in the South and, and place the South under uh, military oversight in a semi-permanent basis. And Thaddeus Stevens proposed a bill that would basically abandon the 14th Amendment and would simply legislate the provisions of the 14th Amendment as a simple bill. John Bingham opposed Thaddeus Stevens' effort, and he did so in a speech which accused Stevens of trying to take away the right of the people to determine their own fundamental law. According to Bingham, this was not a matter of mere legislative power. Um, The Constitution as it was should be understood as a constitution of limited power. And as much as Bingham believed in everything Stevens was trying to do, he insisted that they do it according to the constitutional rules and that they remain true to the need to adopt a specific amendment giving constitution power to enforce um, the rights of freedmen in the South. Bingham prevailed in those early months of 1867. He turned aside uh, Thaddeus Stevens' efforts to abandon the 14th Amendment, and he led Congress to pass the Reconstruction Acts, Acts which secured an amendment to the Constitution, um, an amendment that has become fundamentally important to who we are and our understanding of individual liberty to this day. So Bingham's insistence on principle ultimately gave us this jewel of the Constitution, and I believe he needs to be and deserves to be celebrated for it.
0: Thank you so much, uh, Kurt Lash and Gerard Malioka, for a uh, riveting, illuminating, and crucially important uh, discussion of John Bingham, the James Madison of the 14th Amendment. Dear We the People listeners, uh, 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 Kiel Marr and John Harrison may have been a little late in turning in their homework, but you have not been late in turning in yours. You have been enthusiastically writing to me in response to my request that you read Supreme Court majority opinions and dissent and tell me what you think is more convincing. And the homework for this episode is 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 a is a rigorous one. It's sort of a graduate seminar like. But the question is, do you believe that the original understanding of the privileges or immunities clause uh, allows the court to enforce unenumerated rights or not? A really tough question as as Gerard and Kurt uh, debated it, but if you want to dig in and read their work and that of other scholars, including uh, Akilah Moore and John Harrison, and tell me what you think, then I'll give you a shout-out on We the People, because I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Uh, Gerard, Kurt, thank you so much for joining us.
1: it been a pleasure. Thank
0: you. Today's show was engineered by David Stotz and produced by Madison Poulter and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Lita This summer, bring your friends and family to the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia to visit Hamilton, the constitutional clashes that shaped a nation. It's our wonderful new exhibit, which highlights the competing ideas of Hamilton and his constitutional rivals, including Jefferson, Adams, Madison, and Burr. The exhibit includes a number of wonderful artifacts, including an original page of the infamous Reynolds pamphlet, Hamilton's portable writing desk from the 1700s, where he wrote the Federalist Papers, and a lock of his hair removed by his wife after his fatal fall in the duel. It's just an incredible exhibit, and it's so exciting to see all of these kids flocking to see it and learning about history and the Constitution. Check out ConstitutionCenter.org forward slash visit for more information. And finally, remember, please, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.